today's episode, David and I sit down with our friend Elliot Friesen, who works for Magoosh, the test prep company, as their IELTS or IELTS expert. IELTS is a test that you can take to assess your level of English, even for people who have no plans to take this test. Elliot has amazing tips on how to speak with more fluency as he breaks down how the speaking section of the IELTS test is scored. If you'd like a free copy of the transcript for this episode, just visit rachelsenglish.com slash podcast and search for this episode. Let's get started. Well, Elliot, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So can you tell me what is your current job title? So I'm the IELTS expert at Magoosh, uh, the IELTS curriculum manager. And so I'm, uh, I put together the IELTS training program, and the IELTS is the uh, International English Language Testing System. It's one of the major exams people take to usually get into graduate school or um, into, uh, get some jobs require IELTS scores and even immigration. Uh, some, some countries require an IELTS score for immigration purposes. So we, at Magoosh, we create a training program for students to help them to prepare for that exam. Does the U.S. require that test and a score? The U.S. does not require an IELTS score. Um, in the U.S., IELTS is primarily used by universities, and some companies uh, ask for a score from international applicants. So in the, in the United States, the IELTS and then also the TOEFL exam are the two main exams that universities use to, uh, when uh, choosing which uh, students to accept to the universities. Do you know, is one of them used more right now for uni- colleges and universities, or are they kind of equally useful at this point? Um, so uh, in the United States, traditionally, the TOEFL has been the main exam that universities ask for. However, in the last 10 years or so, uh, many schools have chosen to accept both TOEFL and IELTS scores. Uh, and so the number of schools that accept IELTS scores in the United States is increasing. Uh, if we're considering it globally, uh, the, the IELTS is uh, much more common outside of the United States. Um, and uh, that's primarily because it's um, created by uh, British, Australian, uh, and um, Canadian uh, organizations, and they have a much more international focus. And traditionally, schools have used that exam outside of the United States for the same purposes that uh, American schools have used the TOEFL exam. So um, it's it's really becoming, in the United States, it's becoming sort of mixed now. Outside of the United States, IELTS is definitely the more common exam students will have to take. Got it. And so can you sort of trace for us how you arrived here? You have this really specific expertise and just kind of walk us through how you got where you are. Well, I've been, most of my career, I've uh, taught English at uh, at the college level. I've worked primarily in uh, ESL programs uh, at the University of California, Irvine, and then in the city colleges system in Chicago. Uh, So for the past 10 years or so, that's uh, primarily what I've been doing. Um, I got my start teaching English uh, after college. I uh, lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I worked for a year with the Greater Pittsburgh Literacy Council and taught uh, taught, um, second language learners there. And really just fell in love with it. I, I love language generally. I studied Dutch and German and Spanish uh, in college. And so language was an interest of mine. 
And then as uh, the more I worked with people trying to learn my native language, uh, I, I just became fascinated in the process of how people learn languages. Um, and so in the, in the course of that uh, time, I, I taught mainly writing classes and grammar classes at the college level. But I also, uh, at, at those positions, I would always sort of gravitate towards the um, curriculum development committees that these schools would have or uh, which, which would put together sort of departmental exams, things like that. I've, I've always had sort of an interest in, in exams uh, and how people assess language and how people can sort of measure things like that. And um, so sort of gradu- gravitated towards that and picked up some experience teaching about the IELTS and TOEFL along the way as well. And so when, the, when I found this job here at Magush, it just felt perfect because it, it sort of combines a lot of my own interests and sort of the subspecialty I'd sort of developed for myself along, uh, along the way. So anyway, uh, I was really excited to, to get started uh, at Magush in this job. Mm, that's great. And so when did you start? How long have you been with Magush then? Uh, it's, it's been nearly a year. And when they brought me on, uh, the um, Magush had a full and well-developed uh, TOEFL program and their GRE. It's another exam. It's not related to English, but uh, their GRE exam and their GMAT exams have been around for years, but they didn't have an IELTS uh, program at all. So they brought me on to develop that. And, and so that's what I've been doing ever since last November. I'm so interested in the pronunciation here. I, you know, I'm not in the test prep world. I'm not that familiar with tests. So you're saying IELTS, you're saying the acronym, you're like making all of the sounds into an actual word. (laughs) But for anyone who's not sure what he's saying, it's the I-E-L-T-S exam. Is that standard? Does everyone call it IELTS? Yeah, well, the the full name I think I said earlier, the International English Language Testing System, is kind of a mouthful, and so it is. yeah, so I so most people will just call it uh, IELTS, and mm-hmm. yeah, so we've sort of made that. You're right, we've made that into a word, and it sort of lives on its own. Right now, let's talk scores. I know the sort of lowest score that an American university might take is a five point five. Now, in your opinion, is a 5.5, if, if I get a 5.5, are my English skills actually good enough to be able to participate in a college or university program, or would I be struggling, do you think? That's a, a very interesting question and a, and a kind of a complicated one to answer um, because, um, well, first of all, the IELTS score, there's a general score. It ha- the IELTS has four sections to the exam, the speaking, listening, writing and reading. So a student is going to receive an overall score, which is an average of the those four section scores. And then it's going to be broken down into uh, where each section receives a score. And so um, the, the answer is complicated because some programs are going to require really intensive writing skills, let's say. And they, to do well in that program, if you're studying history, for example, you're going to be writing a lot of 20 to 30 page papers, right? So a student who scores uh, a 5.5, but does extremely well on the writing portion, it's just the other portions we're bringing them down, that might be something that a school would take into account and say, well, you have strong scores in, in writing and that's really something important for this program. Maybe we can find ways for you to bump up your your abilities in some of these other areas. Yeah. Um, you brought up the four sections. 
are they ranked equally in like giving a final score or are some deemed more important than others? From the IELTS, from the exam's perspective, they are all treated equally. So the exam measures each one separately and then gives you that overall score. Um, And so uh, sort of as I was alluding to earlier, each institution may prioritize uh, different parts of your score and may wish I, it's it's very quite common in fact to see a school say well we require a 7.5 on writing for our program but if you score um, if you score a 6.5 or a six in let's say listening or one of these other areas that's perfectly fine that makes sense your students may be interested in the speaking section is different from a lot of other exams um, that are out there. And actually, it's one reason why a lot of American schools uh, have are now accepting the IELTS exam uh, um, in addition to the TOEFL exam, which is that the speaking section is an, an in-person interview. It's an, uh, The interview lasts 11 to 15 minutes. You meet one-on-one with uh, an IELTS representative who, who tests you. And compared to the TOEFL, the TOEFL, you sit in front of a computer and record answers into a microphone on the computer. Um, okay. Wow. That is very different. It's quite different. And and so for some students, you know, um, some students really like to have the TOEFL format where it's impersonal. Maybe they feel less pressure uh, because they can just sort of speak answers into a microphone. I know that for other students, having that interpersonal dynamic of the conversation uh, actually is something that can help some students to sort of feel less nervous about the the process. So that's another yet another thing here that kind of differs among different, you know, different people will prefer one thing or the other. But I would say if if you're applying to a school in the United States and you have a strong preference for one style of speaking over the other, uh, you you might want to choose which exam you take based on on that kind of thing, because that, that can make a big difference in your score. Yeah, definitely. So Elliot, in terms of those speaking, those people taking that, the IELTS and and doing an in-person speaking piece, what is being assessed? How is it being assessed? You know, sort of, I'm just trying to picture what that would be look, you know, what that would look like. Well, the, so when you're in this room with the person interviewing you, they have a script of questions that they're, the sort of standardized questions that they're supposed to ask you. And, and they do use your cues a little bit. You know, some speakers are, are not going to be very fluent. And so they are not going to give long answers. And the, the person leading the interview is trained to sort of lead that interview in a particular direction. Uh, and then people who are more fluent will probably answer fewer questions in the 11 to 15 minutes they have because they're able to, to uh, speak at length about certain topics. Um, does and so, that affect the score, would you say? It does. If you're just giving really short answers, does that show, okay, well, not quite there? So they've anticipated that, and um, the, the, the speaking exam has three parts. And the first part is just really kind of a small talk section where it's perfectly fine to give one or two sentence answers. They might ask you, about let's say what's you know what's your favorite food and who did most of the cooking in your house growing up and really things that you might uh, discuss with somebody normally if you've even if you have basic language skills you might just have that kind of small talk conversation with someone if you're living abroad or something like that so short answers are fine there but then in the middle section you're supposed to give a a one to two minute sort of monologue uh, speech ab- about a topic they provide. 
And there's no way around it there. You have to speak for that long or your score will be docked down uh, significantly. Then the last part, they ask kind of open-ended and abstract questions. You know, so you're supposed to analyze something. And there again, if you give a one or two sentence answer, you're just not going to give the full answer that's necessary. And that is another thing that will bring your score down. Um, Can you give me some examples of the one minute prompt and then the longer questions that you might get asked? Sure. So um, um, the the one to two minute prompt might be something like um, talk about a the 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 question for, and they give you the question in writing. They give you a kind of card or a sheet of paper with it, and they say, okay, you've got a little bit of time to look at this and prepare an answer. So they give you a minute to look at the question, and it might be something like um, talk about a person who influenced your life significantly. And then they give you some bullet points about that. You should, so they'll say, you must describe how you met this person, what they taught you, and how it's impacted your life moving forward. Okay, so it's going to be something like that. And your job is to cover each of those points and then to create an, sort of the last question is always a little more open. And that's what you sort of speak at length about. And you're supposed to talk for at least a minute or two about uh, you know, how you would answer each of those points for the question. And then, so so that's part two of the IELTS speaking exam. Then part three is going to be related to that. So the topic is going to be related. So after you've given your monologue, the, the person doing the interview will transition. And so for the example question about a person who impacted your life, they might ask you then a follow-up question like, what are the qualities of... Um, you know, a person that you admire or what are the main qualities of like uh, somebody who would be a hero or something like that. So it's related to the topic, but you can see from the question, you would have to use more advanced vocabulary and you'd have to speak at length to be able to describe what kind of characteristics a person like that would have. And that just takes a more complicated language to do. Wow. And not only that, but I mean, there's a demand to be reflective as well. Yes as you search for the vocabulary that you want to pull up. Precisely. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty high level. It's tough. It's tough. And, and it's a common occurrence. You could imagine, you know, you're sitting there. I, as a native speakers, we might need a couple seconds to think of what we truly would want to say, right? I mean, it's not right. like that kind of answer is on the tip of your tongue in daily life. So that's another thing too. I mean, it's just a normal thing on essay questions or on speaking questions Sometimes you need time to think. So it's part of the preparation for students to get used to that sort of format and trying to practice thinking on their toes about these things. And then frankly, sometimes you you just need to say the thing that comes to your head first, even if it's not your true opinion about something. If you If you had a whole day to think about something, you probably would say something different than you would on the top of your head for almost anything you're going to say, right? And so you get practice at sort of saying, okay, this is the first thing I can talk about. You know, they're not grading you on whether you're going to be right or wrong or whether they like your answer or not. They're grading your language skills. So you just find something to say, and that's what you talk about uh, on an exam like this. Now, what a great example on why it would be helpful to practice. You know, just that not, not trying to search for what do I truly at my core want to say about this, but to just say, go with the first thing that can make sense in the situation. But that's different than how we normally think and talk. So that practicing would certainly help. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and, and the more 
you can do this kind of thing, even if it's on your own, you know, even if you're just sitting in front of a mirror <laughs> and looking at questions or, or you have a friend who doesn't speak English natively. Okay. That's, you know, obviously it'd be wonderful to have a teacher or a native speaker interviewing you on a regular basis. But even if you get a list of questions, um, this is something we put, we have at, at Magoosh, we, we have a long, we've created a really long list of IELTS speaking questions that students can take and give to a friend or something like that. And even if they don't speak English natively, that friend can ask the questions and you get a chance within a time limit or how, whatever you can do to set up the realistic conditions of the test to answer those questions. It can be really helpful practice uh, to prepare for an exam like this. Awesome tips. Um, so, okay, I have a two-part question. What are you being graded on specifically? Is it vocabulary, pronunciation, grammar, all of them together? And knowing what exactly um, the grader is looking for, what kind of tips can you give people for getting a better score? Great. So, there are four main areas of speaking of uh, skill that the IELTS are looking for and grading you on. So we could go through sort of quickly each four, each of those four, and then maybe a couple of tips about each of those. Perfect. Um, so so the first one would be uh, fluency and coherence. They call it. So fluency is probably something that uh, most of your listeners will be aware of. It's it's how uh, well you're able to speak at a rate of speed that would feel natural to a native speaker. And, and coherence is about how well you can link ideas together. Non-native speakers who do not, who are sort of at the intermediate level or not extremely advanced with their skills often struggle to, to string ideas together in a logical way. So getting from idea A to idea B to C in a way that, that pulls all those ideas together and really makes sense logically Kind of like you would see, you know, writing a paragraph, right? Do do each of the, all all writing teachers want to look for? Do okay? Do all the ideas in your paragraph make sense together? Are they linked together logically? Well, we do that in speaking too, and um, that is something that they're trying to measure on the IELTS exam. Okay, so one of the things you can work on is for fluency. All right, fluency uh, is is a complicated skill. Uh, you cannot get better at fluency without speaking all the time. Even if it's to yourself, you need to take practice questions and not just think about what you would say, but actually say those things. Thank you for saying that because I'm constantly telling my students, just say it out loud. It must be out loud. It's a, it's like exercise. It's not like a, a knowledge that you acquire from a book and you could spit back out on a test, right? It's, it's Preach like, it. This is exactly what I always say. <laughs> it's like playing a sport or it's like playing an instrument much more than it is like learning something that you could, that you could write in an essay. Okay. So it's training the mouth. It's training the connections in the brain so that you are able to say things in a rapid pace, right? And you cannot do that in theory. It has to be in practice. And so saying things over and over and over, even if it's to yourself, is really important to do uh, for for developing fluency. Um, for coherence, I think um, you know you can do things like study um, sort of logical connecting words, so transition words. There are many many lists of those on the internet 
uh, that students can find. And, and I would be happy to share some of the resources I provide to students for that. Um, but finding ways to uh, connect ideas together. Coherence is also, though, about grammar in a way because it involves things like using pronouns accurately, right? When you talk about a person and then you you later, uh, a sentence or two later, say he or she or it or whatever, you're referencing that idea that came before. Uh, for intermediate and lower level English speakers, that is tough to do. And it's tough to keep all those things in mind. Uh, but it is part of your ability to sort of uh, pull sentences together logically and to do so without repeating yourself and being redundant, using the same words over and over and over again. That's interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought about that. I think that's something that we take for granted as native speakers that we we just naturally use she after we've already established we're talking about Laura or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I've got to say, I never had thought about that before. Yeah. Also, you know, the fact that you said there are these long lists of connector phrases that's also something I wouldn't have thought, oh, go find those and study. Um, Elliot, you had mentioned that you have lists for those. Is that right, that you found? I'll put a link to that in the show notes along with other important links for follow-up materials. Great. Um, so anyone who's listening can go to the website, look for the show notes, and find those links. Cool. So to continue then, uh, on, there are three other areas of, of uh, grading that they do on the speaking exam. Uh, the next one would be lexical resource. Um, lexical resource is a fancy way of saying, uh, how much vocabulary do you know and how accurately can you use it? Um, and so, uh, do you use words appropriately, right? So, uh, uh, we, we've probably all thought of a time when we've tried to use a word in a language that we don't know very well. And it wasn't, it, it, maybe it was according to the dictionary, the meaning seemed to fit well. But then somebody was like, you know, we don't really use that word that way. Okay, well, on the IELTS, that's a common thing, that people have studied vocabulary for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, and so that's great. But maybe they use words uh, in an inappropriate context, in a, in a context that a native speaker would not. So that's at the really advanced level. At the lower levels, they're just looking for, do you have to repeat words over and over? Or do you have to do you have to really talk about an idea and kind of dance around the idea, but not talk about it directly, because you don't have all the vocabulary you need to really be precise with your language? Okay, and so that's what lexical resource is. And so the really, really the the key for that is to study vocabulary every single day. Um, I always advise students in general, but also especially ones training for an exam, you should try to learn fifteen new words every day. Uh, more than that is too, is too tough. Uh, it's too difficult for most people to remember on a daily basis, right? So if you're studying 20 to 25 words a day, research shows that you're probably not going to retain a lot of what you're studying. 15 seems to be, 15 to 20 seems like sort of the magic number for most people in terms of how many new words you can kind of acquire and retain uh, on a regular basis. And as part of this vocabulary um, like testing that the grader is doing, do idioms matter? I mean, someone um, asked us a question recently about, should I use idioms? Can I use slang? Should I stay away from those? I said, definitely idioms are fine if you know how to use them. What's your opinion on using slang? And also, if someone uses an idiom really well, does that 
sort of count extra versus just a regular vocabulary word or not necessarily? Yes, I think idioms are wonderful to use. And so um, as long, uh, my advice would be for the IELTS exam would be, you know, don't use extremely informal language, right? Well, and slang, would you stay away from slang as well? Like if someone was describing a party as lit, or I, I don't know, this is just <laughs> yeah. the one that's coming to mind. Like, would you say, stay away from slang in general in this testing environment? Yes. Yeah. And that's a great example. Yeah. I, I would not say that. And and honestly, <laughs> you know, they, they're, most of the topics they're going to provide do not lend themselves well to using slang. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> you're not going to be talking about parties. You right. Know, <laughs> uh, Unfortunately. Yeah, but idioms are different. Uh, idioms do show as long as they don't, they're not too informal, right? If if this is something that you could see yourself saying to your employer, or something that you could see yourself saying to a college professor without uh, feeling strange about it or worrying that you're going to offend them, uh, that might be a good rule of thumb to use about what's appropriate or not. And if you can use idiomatic language well, it does show a, a level of mastery that that is a good thing. Okay. Yeah. Like you just used rule of thumb perfectly, there perfectly, we go. <laughs> masterfully. Um, and actually, one question that I get a lot, well, I get people saying when I'm teaching somebody and I say, you know, in spoken English, it's perfectly acceptable to use the word gonna. Even if you're talking in a work environment, you know, we're going to be meeting at four. I say, don't write it. Mm. But in speaking, it's just completely natural and and perfect. And I have some people saying that's not good English. Mm. What's your opinion in, you know, in the in the testing environment here when they're being graded? If someone says, well, you know, I'm going to talk about my mom and they and they use going to reduced to gonna. Yeah. Is that something that they think is okay? I'm assuming it is. Yes, it is. And it, yeah. that will not raise any eyebrows at all. I think you can say, you can clip words and say, you know, because instead of because when you're speaking fluently. Uh, okay. And that, that can make it complicated. You know, some, it's a really tough thing that our students are trying to navigate. And I have a lot of empathy for them because when you're, when you are speaking uh, really fluently, uh, but you use structures that are maybe um, where you, you're intentionally not trying to say things like that, like going to or is not instead of isn't. I know some students try to not even contract words when they're speaking at all. That would be normal contractions even in writing. So um, when you do that, you run the, you have the risk of sounding too formal and that your speech sounds too choppy and not like a native speaker. If you are not very fluent and your skills are lower, but you do try to clip things like you say cuz and and or you you know you you do try to to clip words off a little bit, then because you're not quite as fluent yet, it then it can sound strange. Right. Uh, because it, you're clipping words when the rest of your speech isn't very fluent either, right? I don't right. Know if, it's if like that makes the sense. reductions make sense as yeah. part of a smoother, more fluent speech. So actually, Elliot, you brought up um, contractions. It's reminding me of this hilarious video series that Tom Kelly made up, came up with where we set a dialogue using no contractions whatsoever. And then we said it again using normal contractions and we dressed up in formal clothing <laughs> for the one with no contractions yeah. just because it, it doesn't see it's so unnatural. It is. And we put the two next to each other to show people 
you know, this is not bad English. No. This is wonderful conversational English. I will make sure that I link to that playlist. That's great. And 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 to be clear, I, I kind of was describing how I have empathy for students because it is a tough thing when you're thinking about, let's say, how you're going to speak on the speaking exam for the IELTS. But there's no doubt about it. Students should be learning how to make their speech sound more fluent, just like native speakers would. And part of that is is using all of those features of spoken language where native speakers are using contractions, they're clipping off words, they're doing all these things. Students should be practicing that because that is how you're going to end up sounding very, very fluent in the long run. Right. Yeah. Like learning those little specific things will help you get the bigger picture. Absolutely. Yep. So the third category then of that they're looking for in IELTS speaking is uh, grammar. They call it grammatical range and accuracy. And what they're looking for with this category is that you can use, of course, grammatical structures uh, with accuracy. You're not making a lot of grammar mistakes. Um, now, a few here and there are not a huge deal, and they will not bring your score down significantly. Uh, the ones that cause problems are uh, ones that get in interfere with your meaning and interfere with understanding what you mean, or if you're doing something consistently, like uh, not using uh, past tenses, for example. That's a common thing that when people are nervous and speaking another language, they remember the verbs, but they can't quite put together how to conjugate them well. Uh, and so they're looking for that kind of thing when determining your grammar score. Um, so accuracy is a piece of that. The range is then another piece. And that that's basically... You know, do you, so do you use the same sentence structures over and over? And are they simple sentence structures? Or, or do you have mastery of more complicated uh, sentence structures? So a very simple sentence structure that's common among intermediate to lower level students would be to use the be verb over and over, right, as your main verb. So sentences that include like am, is, are, was, were as your main verb. And that pattern is repeated over and over and over in your speaking. And this also applies to writing as well. Students who are, are using that pattern uh, consistently will get marked down a little bit because it'll appear as though they don't have mastery of more complicated structures. Examples of more complicated sentence structures would be, um, can you accurately begin a sentence with something like uh, even though or although, right? If you do that, you're going to have to have a complex sentence, okay? It's going to have to have two subjects and two verbs in it. And we don't need to go into the grammar of that, but that would be an example of a type of sentence that would show you have mastery of more complicated sentence structures, right? And then using different verbs, using different, you know, using your adverbs well to describe things instead of using adjectives all of the times and focusing on descriptions of nouns, that tends to be a more basic thing that, that language learners do using adverbs and adverbial structures, right? Using things to describe time and, and how actions occurred. That tends to be something that comes a little later in language development. So they're looking for things like that to assess your ability with grammar. So Elliot, that seems like it would be extremely difficult. Do you have some tips for people uh, on that one? So um, as, as most of your listeners will no, learning grammar takes uh, a long time, right? It's a, it's not an easy thing. It's a major sort of intellectual challenge to learn the grammar of a language that's not your native language. So, uh, you know, 
if if a student uh, who's coming to me to take an exam has you know six months to prepare, I would say you know sign up for a class, get to get, get with a teacher if you can, at the very least get a really good grammar book and do a lot of self study. You know, keep trying to grow. You'll as a as a non native speaker of another language. It may be that you will never fully master the grammar of another of the language you're trying to learn. The grammars of living languages are just so complex. And so be a student continuously and tr- keep trying to learn, keep asking for feedback. Um, but on a more practical level, um, you know, so the example I gave earlier of uh, students who uh, make a lot of um, verb tense mistakes, let's say. Well, many of uh, many of my students that I've had uh, actually know verb tenses extremely well, right? If they, if I sat down and gave them a half hour to finish a verb tense test, they would most of them would at let's say an intermediate level would get a, a perfect score. Okay, it's the difference though between knowing and as we talked about earlier and being able to do it. Right? Can you in the in the course of fluent speech use uh, verb tenses accurately. And that's something that you can practice again through speaking over and over. Um, the, the best thing to do though, is to record yourself, get a recording of each time that you're giving a sample answer for something like the IELTS or whatever it is you're trying to improve your speaking for, and then analyze it. You may notice that you're making verb tense mistakes or other types of mistakes that you understand are mistakes in theory you just weren't able to overcome them when you were trying to speak fluently. That's such a common thing. So being able to to analyze yourself, to either get feedback from a native speaker or to record yourself and to listen to the things that you're doing when you're speaking can be a really good way to to improve your grammar skills. Yeah. And that's something that as I've been learning about Rachel's English Academy and the work that her students are doing in there, um, there are these soundboards where people can you know, listen to over and over again the sound of their voice hitting their own ear and hearing how it sounds, but then can take it a step further in, in Rachel's English Academy and actually post to the Facebook group, you know, with video and actually get, you know, feedback from other students about how that sounds to the other students and Rachel's in there as well. So it's just, it's sort of this amazing um, application of, of video and audio together that people can use to, you know, they have to sort of put themselves out there, but it's just incredible to, to think about the power of our own ears and the ears of other people and correcting the way things sound. Absolutely. Yeah. And getting and, feedback. Yeah. Go ahead, Rachel. Right. Well, I was going to say, I like how you're talking about, you know, we have this knowledge, which is like our theory. And then we have like the ability to do it on the fly as we're speaking, the practice. And I like the idea of recording yourself in practice because when you go back and watch that, your knowledge, your theory mind will be able to correct mm-hmm. your practice mind. Yeah. And like in a situation like the my Facebook group, if maybe your knowledge isn't quite there, but if you post it and then someone else's knowledge can, can, can come in and say, you know, this is one thing that you should tweak. Then, but, but even if you decide not to do that and it's just yourself that you can correct yourself. And this is one thing that I really try to train my students to do is to correct themselves. They do not have to have a teacher always telling them what to fix. They can do an incredible amount of training on their own when they know how to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. And getting that, the, getting the feedback from recordings and 
having that, not just letting, you know, speech is different from writing because once it's out of our mouths, it's sort of gone forever, right? It's, it, it, it's out there and, and, and it's sort of lost unless we record it and we go back and we analyze it a little bit. And how many, you know, I'll speak for myself again. When, when I speak another language, I, it's probably almost every second or third sentence. I make a mistake. I catch it, but it's too late. The thing is already out of my mouth, right? And I've made the mistake and I thought about it, but then I'm trying to hold a conversation. So I let it go and I don't think about it anymore. When you practice speaking and you record yourself, you get to listen to it again. It's, it's, it's not fun. I, I'll, you know, I don't love to listen to my own voice recorded on something. Right. And your own mistakes. Yeah. And you, you're listening for mistakes. But there it is. And what you're, what I, I think what you're doing is, as you say, you're pulling the theory and the practice together every time you attend to it and you focus on it. It gets that much closer uh, to being something that you can do in full in fluent speech when you're trying to do it in, in a real situation. So I, I, that, I really think it's a great thing to have these videos and opportunities to get feedback and analyze yourself, but also get feedback from anyone else who can provide it. And one of the things that I always tell people is if, like you're saying, you record yourself in a conversation, you go back, listen to it later, and you notice a sentence where you made a mistake, you know how to fix it, then you have the opportunity to practice that sentence like 10, 20, 30 times, Mm -hmm. making that connection in the brain stronger. And, you know, you don't, don't just practice it once. I always tell people once you get it right, like that's the time to really go to town with it, doing it over and over and over in order to sort of you know, be stronger than the habit that's in place. And, and actually, I think that's a nice, a really good segue to the last category that the IELTS use to, to uh, judge your speaking skill, because the last one is pronunciation. And so they, they are looking for your pronunciation on the IELTS exam, um, but they're, they're not looking for uh, they're not looking for the absence of an accent of any kind, right? That so they expect that anyone anyone who learns a language later than uh, later than you know basically nine ten years old, uh, maybe even earlier, is going to have some kind of accent when they learn a second language, and so they know that they're not going to grade you down for it. What they're looking for are things in your speech that get in the way of understanding you, right? So are there patterns in your speaking that a native speaker just would have trouble uh, decoding, making sense of as you're speaking, okay? That can be individual sounds that students have problems with, uh, and that can, be, that can be, you know, sentence patterns like intonation or the rhythm of your sentence, right? So if you're saying things it, really on a sentence level where you're putting the stress on the wrong word in the sentence or the wrong part of a longer word, it can really affect a a listener's ability to understand you. And that's the kind of thing that they're looking for in the pronunciation. So that connects to what what you were just saying a minute ago uh, in the sense that one of the best ways, I think, that students can prepare for this kind of exam, like the IELTS exam, uh, and to, to work on these sort of uh, sounds that may get in the way of meaning is to to listen to themselves, to record themselves, to hear their own voice. Yes, that's part of it. But then also to do really intensive practice, really deeply listening to native speakers and how they speak. And not just individual words, but 
but snips, you know, clips of language, you know, parts of a TED talk or some other kind of longer speech that they might be able to hear. Not just listening to it, but but using it kind of like, uh, again, to use this sort of framework that we've talked about throughout the interview here, um, the sort of exercise or tra- music training sort of perspective on it. So stopping and starting the recording, playing it for a few seconds, listening to it deeply, and then trying your best to mimic exactly what you hear. And what, what I get from my students is I tell them to try this. And they, they'll, they'll listen to a clip of, let's say, one sentence at a time, and they'll try to mimic it and try to make the sounds. But it, it, it never ends up being perfect until, uh, until they sort of allow themselves to feel silly and to allow themselves to sort of uh, go to some place where they can make these sounds that are just completely unnatural to them. They, you get practice hearing them. But actually producing them is a different thing and your willingness to be able to actually use your mouth and use your voice to make these sounds that are completely foreign is something you can train with kind of like an athlete or kind of like a musician would train. Uh, and, and then there's a psychological component of just getting over the idea that these sounds are just completely foreign and kind of uncomfortable to make as you're making them. And so using these recordings and using, you know, native, you know, examples of native speakers speaking and really trying to, to speak exactly as they do, copy every feature of what they're trying to say, I think is a really valuable sort of practice for an exam like this, but also just generally to improve your skills. That's so exciting to hear you say, because it like totally mirrors my own opinion on it in a couple of ways. First, I love what you're saying about there has to be a willingness to do something that might feel very uncomfortable or very different or very silly, very lazy, whatever adjective you want to use there, just do it. You know, I feel like I'm drunk. Okay, try that. You know, because the language you're coming from might have such a different style that it it does feel drunk to you to connect everything and sort of be smooth with your English. Um, And, you know, I think a lot of students put in a lot of time without having yet made that commitment to to be uncomfortable and to you know push themselves push their boundaries of of what they think they should sound like and if you're putting a lot of time into practice before you make that commitment I don't think that practice is going to be as fruitful and another thing that I love what I'm hearing you say is you know this I, I use TED Talks as well for my students and in my online school where we'll take it, we'll analyze it, you know, a little piece you can analyze. It can take me a half hour to analyze one paragraph of speech. And then I'll break it up into little, you know, one second, two second sentence fragments that they can then just play and say over and over. And Elliot, one thing that I discovered that was really exciting was when they take a a very short clip, you know, it might not even be a whole sentence and they play it and they say it and they play it again and they say it again and they don't stop and correct. They just play it and say it and keep going forward. That they make all of these amazing subtle changes. And I was talking with someone on this podcast who's a stroke survivor, an American, who said this is actually a method they use in um, speech pathology as well, in training stroke victims as well, is you don't stop and correct. You just rely on the ear and you keep reinforcing what you're hearing and you say it, play it, say it, play it, say it. It is awesome how people can change without getting any feedback from a native speaker when they do that. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And it's, the, it's just that repetition and, and it involves your muscles. It involves connections in your brain. It involves things 
that you're not necessarily in control of with your conscious brain, right? It, it's this practice that you go through and, and the repetition that creates something eventually that is, is, is basically what you're, what you're striving for, this kind of fluency or this, this ability to create the sounds that you are really trying so hard to create. There's no shortcut around it. it, it it's this dedication to not only trying to feel silly and make those sounds in the first place, but then also the willingness to put in the, the consistent effort to do it. Absolutely. Now, one problem I run into is I can create materials until the cows come home. I can create hours and hours of materials, but I cannot do the work for anybody. You know, how do you motivate your students? Because they have to do the work because it's their own body. Mm-hmm. How do you motivate students to put in the time consistently in order to make that change happen? Yeah. It's, and so... You know, what I've, what I've found from students now, okay, there, there's a piece of this question where, where unfortunately, you know, just like, uh, you know, my sister could, could learn the piano and she's a wonderful piano player. And I sat in front of it and struggled for years and years, even though I practiced really hard, I, I never quite got as good, right? Some people have this native ability to, to get somewhere faster, right? And so we see that person in your English class who seems to be speaking extremely fluently and we wonder, okay, how did they get there? Well, there may be, there may be an, sort of uh, that component of, of somebody's capacity to do this thing. But then the second part of it that relates to your question and this motivation piece you know, I work with adults mostly, or at least young adults and, and up to, I've worked with people who are in their 70s and 80s as well. And um, the people who tend to be the most successful, not only at speaking fluently and accurately and clearly, but also in other areas of their English language, are the ones who have found some way that they need to use their English in their daily life that sort of puts the pressure on them to continue learning and developing over time. So that person who has a job, let's say, where English is used on a daily basis, okay, not, not all of your students are going to go out and get a job where English is the language that they use during, uh, during the day, but that stu- I can say very clearly that the students I've had who've had, to, had the pressure of using English in work circumstances, uh, I think that is something that has had a profound impact on many of my students. And, I, and there's research to back that kind of thing up. So the, the thing is, you know, okay, not everybody's going to get that job where they use English on a daily basis. They may not want to, or there may not be, they may not want to necessarily go to school in an English language setting where the pressure would be similarly high. But can you place yourself in situations on a daily basis, or at least a regular basis, where you will have to communicate in English at a high level? That kind of thing will do much more than what I can do as a teacher to motivate you. It it is something you can arrange as part of your life to make a consistent English practice really pay off in a concrete way for you because you need to use your English on a daily basis. Can you join a club, maybe a book club of some kind, something where you're going to have to be talking about something on an abstract level or on a complex level on a regular basis with people who are also speaking in English? That kind of pressure is the kind that motivates people in an ongoing way and tends to propel students to levels higher than what they would just maybe accomplish on their own without a similar kind of uh, motivational piece that they've added to their lives in some way. Awesome. That's great advice. So if if your life isn't structured where you're going to have a job or you're applying to school, then 
pick something to add the pressure of needing to learn English well? You have to push yourself into different areas, areas where you're uncomfortable, you know, not only to produce sounds of English, right, but also to talk about things that maybe you're not, you're not really, uh, you haven't really spoken about much before in English. Uh, you have to find those areas and, and f- force yourself to, to put yourself out there and try them because that's the way your, your English skills grow broadly over time as well. Oh my gosh, such amazing advice. Elliot, you are a wealth of information. (laughs) (laughs) Cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. Now, I'm sure people out there, anyone who is planning on taking this exam is going to want to know how to learn more about you and what you're doing. Where? So tell them, please. Yeah. Well, we have a we have an IELTS blog, so it's it's about the IELTS exam. Also, Magoosh has other you know other exams if students are interested in the TOEFL or the GRE. Um, the one that I produce is is the IELTS blog, and I'll uh, I'd love to share a link of that uh, for uh, with you guys. And also about the speaking topics we covered here. Uh, there's a specific blog post about uh, you know it's a complete guide to the IELTS speaking exam. Uh, so if students are interested in that, they should go check that out. It gives a lot of uh, advice about how it's scored and how they can practice for it to increase their score. I think there's a lot of other general information there that they'll find useful. And I would just encourage students to poke around on our blog and on our website. We we really, uh, you know, our, the main thing we we do as a company is to offer a training program uh, to help students uh, to do really well on these exams. It's really, we believe, really high-quality content that's, that's um, affordable for students. We try to try to make what we create as affordable as we can. Uh, so it's a good resource there, and that's that's the primary thing that we do. But we, uh, we have a YouTube channel. We have a blogs for all of our exams with a lot of free stuff, and students should just feel free to go there and find whatever is useful for, for what they're working on poke around and see what's there. Cause there's a lot of free stuff that we also have for students. So, um, yeah, well, I, yeah, I've got some links that I can provide you and, and your students can go poke around if they'd like to. Sure. I will put all of those links in the show notes. Um, and I think that's it until we have you on again. Cause I have a feeling that, that we are going to get feedback that says, bring Elliot on and ask him this. <laughs> so this may be this may be the first in a series. Elliot, thanks again for your time. Anytime. Yeah, it's, it was absolutely perfect. Thanks so much, Elliot. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again to Elliot. So much great information there for not only people who want to improve their test score, but for anyone who wants to speak better English. You have to train for it like a musician or an athlete And there are tools you can use to train, like the materials in Rachel's English Academy, my online school, or the test prep tools that Elliot is developing over at Magoosh. Don't forget, if you want a transcript for this episode, it's absolutely free to download. Visit rachelsenglish.com slash podcast and look for this episode. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. You can do so at the iTunes store or in Stitcher. And please do tell your friends and family about this podcast. Share your favorite episode on social media, maybe Facebook, and encourage them to take a listen and subscribe too. Let's spread the word about the Rachel's English podcast. Podcast.